Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health with you. Joined again by uh, my colleague, my dear friend, Dr. Josh Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Josh, what's going on? How are things? Well, I took my lithium today, so I expect this to be a fine interview. <laughs> Josh has all balanced out, everybody. Absolutely. Every- Everything should go smoothly. I don't anticipate any sarcasm or snark or outbursts. No, no. Out of the question. Because we're professionals here. At we sure are. <laughs> okay. And highly paid professionals, too. Highly paid. I drive a 17-year-old Lexus. It has a tape deck and a CD player, so I am uh, I am flying high. Josh has an Ultima that's, I think, 37 years old at this point. Is that right? Right, and I was living in it for a while. At least that's my story. Yeah, so we're on we're on the Monsanto payroll. Oh, you can big tell time, big time, Daddy O. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, we have two new dispatch stories to discuss today. Josh is the author of the first. I wrote the second. And uh, Josh, your story is uh, FDA opioid give back program. Who knew they had a sense of humor at this giant federal bureaucracy? And then my story is about uh, a top ten article from an anti pesticide group, which is utter silliness. We'll get into that later. Uh, Josh, tell us about this story and maybe you should set up the, the so-called opioid crisis a little bit. So people have the context for what you're writing about here. Sure. What people, uh, think is the opioid crisis is, is, is all wrong. Perhaps it was back in the nineties when a lot of people were hooked on Oxycontin and you were seeing deaths and addictions from that. It's completely different now. We've got two opioid crises. The primary, well, there's not a primary one. They're they're equally important. The first one I'll mention is the uh, insertion of government between doctors and patients because they are monitoring to the pill uh, these analgesic opioids and They are um, prosecuting doctors for writing too many prescriptions, whatever that is. And this is not pill mills. Pill mills are long gone. Uh, So it's really the inability of millions of chronic pain patients to get the drugs they need to keep their lives going uh, and keep them from being stuck in bed all day, or attempting suicide. And, of course, the second part is the overdose deaths, and that's almost entirely from fentanyl. So uh, the original story that people were dying from taking too many oxycodones is dead wrong because it's getting to be to the point where it's almost impossible to get your hands on oxycodone anyhow because there's so much pressure on doctors and hospitals not to prescribe these drugs. And, of course, the law of unintended consequences. Uh, In the last decade, uh, prescriptions for these drugs were cut by more than 50%. And what happens? The overdose rate goes up three times. So I I guess some people think that uh, if they cut it more, then it's going to magically turn around and go down. But... There's an expression, I cut it twice and it's still too short, that Carpenter's used. So that's um, that's all I'll say about that. 
Okay, so that's the background people need. Uh, overdose deaths primarily today are due to illicit fentanyl. They're not from prescription drugs. Um, but the FDA recently came up with this really strange idea to have people send their their excess <laughs> uh, opioid medicine back to the FDA just to get them out of circulation, I suppose. And and you mocked this the whole day long. <laughs> so tell tell us why you think this idea is so absurd. Well, this um, assumes that there are a lot of leftover opioid pills sitting around. Of course, this isn't the case anymore. But let me ask you a question. If there were, why aren't all the people who took them addicted to them? Because the uh, anti-opioid zealots maintain that these pills are so addictive that you can get hooked on them by taking a single pill. So you can't have it both ways. Either they're um, a ton of pills sitting around that the FDA needs to safely dispose of, or they're not because the pills were so addictive that people took them all. So one of these has got to be wrong. <laughs> you know, there's a, I don't know what's going on at the FDA these days, but there's multiple issues that they have regulatory authority over and the policy just doesn't make any sense. And we don't have to get into the other, the other ones today, but I'm thinking about vaping and then their policy on uh, gene editing regulation in the realm of uh, animal agriculture. It's just, it's just strange. There seems to be this trend where, the policy makes no sense and you have experts point this out to them and then they just sort of shrug their shoulders and keep going. So I, I don't, I don't know what in this particular instance, what do you think the problem is? Why, why is the FDA doing useless things like this? Cause, cause it, as your article clearly states, this isn't going to do anything, right? I mean, there's, there's none of these drugs floating around for one thing, but there's, you know, an ocean of illegal illicit fentanyl out there that people can get their hands on. So I, why focus on this instead of doing something that may actually make a dent in the, in the crisis that we're talking about? Well, I can't exactly answer that, but let's say I used to have a fair amount of respect for the agency, especially when I was doing pharmaceutical research and there was a lot of back and forth between the FDA and our company and other companies when it came to uh, giving permission to run a clinical trial or a phase two trial. And I also, I have some friends that work there. And I thought for the most part, the scientists there were good and did a, a decent job. So if they had a question about something that was wrong with the drug that I made and we were trying to get approval for, it was usually a, a sensible question and a real concern. What's going on now? I don't know. I mean, the CDC went to hell when Tom Frieden um, took over and it became all political and stupid. And it would seem like the FDA is doing the same thing now. That's just my partially informed opinion. But clearly, there are a bunch of morons making decisions now. Or you wouldn't have people sending pills that don't exist through the mail 
where the postal carriers were going to steal them. And so the non-pills are going to get non-stolen and not end up back in the FDA in the first place. Damn fine policy, I think. This just occurred to me, Josh. I don't know if you've written directly about this, but uh, there, there's another drug available that's designed to treat opioid addiction called uh, buprenorphine. And I think it, it can be given orally and it can be given as an, eje- an injection. And I think it's given once a month. And I just saw a story very recently um, by an addiction expert. I'm trying to find the article so I can reference it. But it was, yeah, yeah, here it is. Okay. So it was by Jenny Gold. It was published at Kaiser Health News. And she makes the, the point that the federal regulations on this drug are actually really strict. So people who are addicted to, to illicit uh, opioids, they're having a hard time getting a, an effective drug that could help treat the condition that they're struggling with. So you have, you have rules on that end restricting it, but then you also have pain patients who can't get the medicines they actually need. So on both ends of this policy it seems like it's the worst possible thing you can do. I just don't, I don't understand what rationale would lead any regulator to th- these conclusions. Well, in fact, it's even worse than that because uh, what you just said points out a big flaw in the way pain and addiction are treated because they're lumped together and pain patients are now being treated like addicts because they have a dependence or a tolerance on a drug. Big deal. That's what happens when you take a drug for a long period of time. You get tolerant and you get dependent, and neither one is addiction. So um, BUP is what, what they call it, is not a real expert on it, but I think it's a pretty effective drug for helping people who are addicted become less addicted. But it's a terrible pain medication. So yet these poor, poor pain patients who used to be treated humanely, now the doctors won't give them any meds or they're offering them bute, which is wrong on two counts. It's saying you're an addict, which they're not, and it doesn't work for pain. So uh, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Nothing makes any sense when it comes to this issue anymore. Just for people who may not be aware, can you clarify the difference between physical dependence and addiction? Because for a lot of people, that just, it seems like two ways to say the same thing. So what's the difference? Physical dependence is when you require a drug and sometimes higher and higher levels of it to achieve an effect. In in this case, it's relief of severe pain. Uh, Addiction is when you crave the drug, whether you're in pain or not. And that's a destructive behavior. And, um, you know, addicts basically will ignore everything else in their lives in order to get their fix. People who are pain patients and habituated to a drug want the drug to feel better. They don't want it to get high. Uh, They don't crave it when they 
don't hurt. So it's a world of difference between the two. And the fact that these are conflated only makes this entire issue even less scientific than it was before. And it's, um, yeah, I hear this from the many people that follow me on, on the, my writings I've done on pain and hundreds of them say I'm treated like an addict. And that's true. Uh, when, when they want drugs to uh, control their pain, and a lot of them, we're talking millions of people, some of which are uh, living in agony all the time. There's something called drug-seeking behavior, which is a nonsense term, and it applies to addicts who used to be able to go to multiple drugstores and get a bunch of uh, some opioid drug. But now if a patient goes to a, a doctor and asks for painkiller, well, that's drug-seeking behavior also because the drugs don't just magically fly out of the pharmacy and end up at your door. You have to seek drugs. So if you want a prescription, you're, you're, that's drug-seeking drug behavior. Just another um, additional piece of stupidity that is is thrown into this whole thing. The bottom line is pain patients are not addicts. They're dependent on these drugs to live. Addicts are people that are controlled by the drug, and when they don't get it, they uh, have all the withdrawal symptoms that we all know about. Night and day. So I believe this was three or four years ago now, before we were ACSH colleagues, I interviewed you on, on another podcast I was doing at the time, and you made a point that really struck me because this whole issue of opioid addiction and drug abuse, this is, for, for me and maybe for a lot of people listening, this is foreign. You know, we don't, we've never had a real experience with any of these substances, but you made a point during that interview that has always stayed with me. You said, you know, the day may come where you get in a car accident and crush both your knees and you're going to need pain medication <laughs> um, or you're going to be in unbearable pain and you're going to suffer and you're going to lay there in your hospital bed and they're going to try to give you uh, IV Tylenol. <laughs> and I just, I don't know why that, that hit me, but in other words, this really matters. This could affect anyone and, and everyone listening to this. It, it just is a matter of circumstance, really. So talk about that a little bit. Any one of us is a bicycle accident or a car accident or a fall or the development of a disease. Any one of us is five minutes away from needing those drugs, depending on the circumstances. We're talking about people that may have never taken an opioid in their lives. And if they're injured badly and there's nothing to control their pain, which is common, we go into the pool of the million uh, pain patients who are uh, off in a gulag someplace, unable to get the medicines to keep them alive. So uh, just think about it. You know, 
your kid or your your parent uh, gets hit by a car and they will be treated with Tylenol, which is completely useless, or NSAIDs like Advil, Aleve, which kill your stomach and your kidneys. And uh, it's just dumb luck that we're not lying there in a hospital bed screaming because not just doctors, but hospitals are under great pressure to cut the uh, prescription rate. So there are all these alternative therapies that are used that are opioid sparing as if two days of morphine after a knee replacement is going to addict you like 0% of the time, but they want to try Neurontin, which doesn't work, and IV Tylenol, which doesn't work, and aromatherapy, which doesn't work, and music. So this is the extent that this um, these zealots have uh, wormed their way into the practice of medicine to, you know, to, to the point where we're torturing people for no reason whatsoever. This, what really brought this home, I, you mentioned that a few years ago when we were talking and then last year, my, my son was born and uh, I remember my wife went into labor and uh, you go to the hospital and then they, they, they check her out and they go, okay, well, she's ready to be admitted or no, not yet. And it was an experience like nothing I've ever had because labor is painful. And it just, it grieved me to see my wife in that condition. There's nothing I can do. And you go to the doctors and like, well, you know, it's not time yet. So go home and get some rest. And I I'd said to the nurse, I said, rest, she's, she's keeled over. She, she can't sleep like this. You got to give her something, you know, and then they gave her something, you gave her, you know, pain medication to get through the night. And then when we went back, they gave her an epidural and then she slept through most of her labor. And it was incredible, right? And I, 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 that really brought home to me why these drugs are useful in certain circumstances. Obviously, we don't want people to abuse them. We don't want people addicted or, or whatever, you know. But in a medical setting like that, I don't. I didn't want to see my wife in pain for five hours. She slept through it, and then our son was was born perfectly healthy. And that's that's the way it should be, you know. That's the way medicine should work. And so I, I just. I don't know. It, it blows my mind, Josh, that this is happening. But that brings me to the the recent debate in New York that you attended at the Soho Forum. And it's a debate between Dr. Jeff Singer and uh, another. She's a she's an anti opioid activist. Uh, what's her, what's her name? Let me let me get this real quick. That's right. Okay, so they're they're having this debate, and then during the Q and A, <clears throat> you walked up and you politely asked her. Uh, more, more or less for, for Josh, you were on your best behavior, <laughs> but you said, you said what you said earlier here, which is that, you know, these are, these, these overdose deaths are due to illicit fentanyl. These are not, uh, pain patients who are taking too many prescription drugs. And her answer drove me nuts because assumed what she needed to prove. She said, well, they get hooked on opioids and then they go take fentanyl and then they die. But the whole point of your question was, yeah, because you're making it hard for them to get the the opioids that are safe and that aren't going to kill them and that are prescribed by a doctor. So they have medical supervision. So it's like even in answering your question, she had to assume that she was right. 
and I don't know if she did this on purpose or if she she just didn't see the the, the logical flaw in that answer. But what, what what did you think about that? What did you think of that answer when she gave it to you? Uh, it's the same answer that all of them give. It's gobbledygook. Uh, she she there were so many inaccuracies in in um, everything she said, but. So I wanted to call out one specific point, and that's a trick that's used by um, the anti-opioid zealots and activists. And she used it, and I wanted to pin her down on that. And it is, there were 107,000 opioid deaths in 2021 in the United States alone. And then she went on. Now, this is a trick because people who don't really know this stuff, and that's mostly everybody, are going to think, oh, my God, they're still taking these damn pills and dying. Uh, So by making that statement and not qualifying it, it gives the false impression that there are all kinds of uh, uh, oxycodone, Vicodin overdose deaths, when in fact that's a bunch of nonsense. There are very few. The 107 includes fentanyl plus cocaine plus methamphetamine plus heroin plus legitimate pain pills which make up a tiny fraction of that number. So they leave this out intentionally to give the false impression that we're still under the siege of pills that, of course, that's the pharmaceutical company's fault because you never lose debate points by blaming drug companies. And uh, it's just all wrong. It's a lie by, by omission. And then she lied again because... You and I both know very well that when we stir the pot a little bit and uh, say something that is true but controversial and people cannot respond properly to whatever our statement is, we get called industry funded. So that automatically dismisses us because we're just a bunch of well-paid talking heads. So once I heard her say that, and I yelled out, that's a lie, I don't know if that came across in the transcript, I knew I had to write this up. Because um, she she knew me. Because all this, this Physicians for uh, Responsible Opioid Prescribing Prop, they all know me and they all hate me. And um, the only strategy they have is that we're industry-funded. So I, I, I thought, you know what, enough of this crap. It's, it's really time to put this to rest. So I wrote a rather scathing report on the debate, and I showed her how much industry money we get, and it's pitifully little. And in fact... I pointed out that in a single case, a few Berman who 
makes a fortune testifying against drug companies as an expert. And it's not clear if she knows anything whatsoever, but she calls herself an expert. That's fine. Um, she made more in one case against Johnson & Johnson than uh, it would take us to make in four years based on industry contributions. So who, who's industry funded? Well, she is. She's funded by the litigation industry, and we're funded by private donations. So just one lie after another. If you think... You think I sound pissed off? It's because I kind of am. I I think you should though. You I know, I, pe people have this idea that academics and scientists are these sort of philosopher kings, and they just sit above everyone and they tell us the technically correct answer about how to run our society. And it's not really like that because scientists are humans, and they you know they have families and they experience pain and suffering. And so I think you should care about this because. Not not only are lots of people dying unnecessarily, but you have people that are just living in pain. And I remember one of your articles years ago, I know you've said it multiple times now, but you said people need these drugs, they can't get them, so they either kill themselves or they go find street drugs, and then they overdose because those drugs are totally unregulated and very, very deadly. And that's the end of the story for so many people. And then you have you have certain researchers, certain, you know, uh, litigation consultants they, they seem utterly unaffected by this and I, I don't know how like I just couldn't go through my life knowing that there's people out there that I could probably help with with my advocacy and I just am I, I guess I'm ambivalent about it or I don't I don't know it, it boggles my mind Josh well Cameron until fairly recently I believed that this was just these were just dogmatic people with strong opinions and uh, perhaps ego and academic standing that was making them uh, maintain these arguments, even though they're completely false now. I don't, I don't believe that anymore. This is about money because, um, and, and corruption. So this group prop that I, mentioned uh andrew kolodny no friend of mine uh is now the president and they're pushing for fewer and fewer prescriptions blaming the drug companies for the so-called opioid epidemic and then using their standings to testify against companies and Kolodny, who made $725 an hour, a total of about a half million, testifying for Oklahoma against Johnson & Johnson, who had the unmitigated gall to manufacture some Vicodin or oxycodone pills. Do you, do you see the circle of corruption that we're, that we're experiencing here? It finally makes sense. These experts are, they are part of, let's call it the legal pharmaceutical uh, axis of evil. I mean, I know that a bunch of mixed metaphors there, but there is 
tremendous amounts of money to be made testifying against drug companies. And the sleazebag lawyers who hire these people to do this, they know what's going to happen. They know that they're not going to lose cases because people hate drug companies. So they bring in these so-called experts, many of whom haven't even seen a patient ever or in 25 years. Their testimony is taken. They get paid off. The lawyers get paid off. The drug companies settle or lose, and they stop making the pills. So the pain patients are the infantry in a war about money and power, and they have neither. And this is one reason why I write so often and so ferociously about this, because this is just so wrong what's going on now, and it's so corrupt that um, this will all come out someday. And we're going to sit there and think, oh, my God, how did we let these people take over and ruin millions of lives? It's a disgusting chapter in American history that's going on now. Well, we will certainly keep covering it, and specifically Josh will keep covering this for us. And it is tragic, and I I think, uh, you know, despite all the jabs about industry funding on our part, which, of course, as we've established with uh, both with our financials and with our automobiles, that's a myth (laughs) that, you know, we're going to we're going to keep talking about this because there's a lot of people that that are really suffering. So let's leave that there, Josh, and then let's talk about another issue And this one drives me utterly bonkers. This is uh, an article I wrote for our website about an activist group called Slow Food. They're one of these pro-organic farming groups, and they think that pesticides are evil. They think that genetically engineered crops are evil. And recently, they published an article called uh, 10 Key Facts About Pesticides. And my observation and my response was that there wasn't a fact listed in that list of 10 things. And it's just kind of mind-boggling because like with food, it's a little more abstract, you know, like with the pain patient thing, if you understand the facts, you right away, you go, Oh, there's people suffering. This is tragic. But with food, because in the Western world, even amid, you know, inflation and higher prices and so forth, there's still plentiful food. It's more expensive. And that's, that's really difficult for some people. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there isn't a, there isn't no food on your shelf at the store. Right. But in a lot of places around the world, because they don't have access to, Uh, effective pesticides they don't have access to these other technologies people starve you know and i'm not i'm not exaggerating if you look at a country like like sri lanka people people don't have enough to eat and the consequences are predictably tragic so i see articles like this and it drives me nuts so let's go through a couple of the the points that they make and you're the chemist between the two of us so you have a little more insight here than um i think a lot of people would so one of the first things they said is that, um, you know, farmers rely on an excessive amount of pesticides. And my response was, well, what does that mean exactly? Excessive is a very broad word. Depending on who's using it, it can mean whatever you want. And, of course, pesticides are not all created equal. They're, they're different chemicals. They have different modes of action. They're meant to target different pests. Some kill weeds. Others kill bugs. Others kill microorganisms. So to kind of lump them all together is it just betrays an ignorance of the subject. And 
I drew on your work here because I know you go crazy when people start talking about artificial sweeteners as if they're just this one giant pile of white powder that tastes good and is meant to emulate sugar. And for some reason, we just put them in different colored packets, you know, for marketing or whatever. And it's the same thing here with, with pesticides. They're all different. And the people who attack them, they just kind of lump them together as this big evil chemical soup. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are these are two good topics to be in the same <laughs> podcast. No, I'm serious because you can never go wrong attacking a drug company or a chemical company because, you know, they're the essence of evil. So it, it's no accident that, um, you know, that, that these are the targets. They're easy targets. People are completely ignorant about chemicals and they're scared of them and they're easily manipulated into thinking that we're um, you know we're all dying from all these carcinogens pouring into reservoirs and and leaking out of our ceilings and everything and uh, of course it's nonsense So, yeah, we're almost talking about the same topic. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is definitely some overlap, and uh, it's no coincidence that we're talking about these today. <laughs> um, to, get, to get more specific, though, they, they talk in this article about how um, pesticides haven't done that much good, and they cite the United Nations uh, on this point. And I don't understand what's going on at the UN. They're, they're a legitimate organization. They have a lot of credibility with most people. And then they come out with these utterly insane opinions, especially on, on, on food production and agriculture. They're, they're often critical of pesticides. They're often in favor of restricting access to certain technologies. And so it gives groups like this, like Slow Food, this sort of this gloss of legitimacy because they can say, look, the UN says that pesticides haven't reduced world hunger. And, and my response here was, okay, well, you moved to Sri Lanka where they uh, – I don't know if they banned every single one, but they 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 very tightly restricted the the access to fertilizers and pesticides that their farmers had, and it destroyed their agricultural production. I mean, the the government, the taxpayers, meaning had to had to step in and give farmers two hundred million dollars to uh, to help them make up for the losses, and then the government had to spend more money to help them rebuild their their growing operations because. One third of the country's agricultural land last year just laid fallow because they didn't have the inputs they needed to grow food. And so this, this is truly tragic. Uh, people went hungry because of this. So there's real consequences, as I said earlier. And again, again, like with the opioid issue, it seems that there's people, they just live on this other planet and they, they're seemingly unaffected by this. And, and I, don't, I don't get it, man. I know I've said that already, but I just don't get how people people think this way. I would argue that we're talking about exactly the same thing. And you and I both know that there are certain pseudo environmental groups that are heavily funded by the organic industry to um, study minute traces of chemicals that are found in urine or whatever. And, uh, Therefore, buy organic because that particular offensing, offensive chemical won't be in it, which is, of course, a bunch of nonsense. So I think it's money behind both of these things. 
And there's suffering behind both of these things. And money outweighs suffering. God, do I sound cynical enough? I mean, yeah, but you know, you can you can be as uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said, you can be a cynic without being a pessimist, and I think that's the proper place to be. Is you can be cynical about what's going on, but you don't have to think that we're gonna that you know the facts are gonna lose out in the end because stupid isn't a workable policy. It just will run out of steam at some point because it cannot do what it's intended to do. And I think that's what you see here. And you can see it in some of these other arguments. And we'll wrap up here pretty quick. But they, you know, they make the same sort of arguments that we that we see from people like Joe Mercola, like these anti-vaccine activists. So they say things like uh, chronic exposure to pesticides has been linked to insert your favorite scary disease here, cancer and birth defects and uh, autism, like whatever. They just pick a scary disease. And what they don't tell people is that the studies behind these claims are usually garbage they're usually low quality epidemiological studies where they're they're asking people to self-report how much of a given pesticide they've been exposed to which is utterly useless as exposure data because no one can quantify that in any meaningful way and then they look at their you know they follow them for 30 years or whatever or if it's a case control study they look back 30 or 40 years and they go oh well you were exposed to this thus and so pesticide and then you develop non-hodgkin's lymphoma well it looks like there's an association between this pesticide and your your cancer it's just absurdity and they don't explain this well cameron i would argue that these studies are not designed uh, to come up with the truth they are designed to get researchers funded and lawyers' cases. So I, I don't even think we're talking about poor science. I think we're, we're talking about, in many cases, just money and corruption again, because, uh, you know, really, who cares about people in poor countries and whether they eat or people in the United States, whether they're in bed and pain when there are millions and millions and billions of dollars to be made. I think it's exactly the same thing that's going on. Yeah, it could be. And in, in some cases we know that you, you have researchers who have financial or some kind of a professional relationship with an activist group or with an organic food company they're either they're either hired as litigation consultants like we talked about earlier or they're just paid to publish a study and then publish it in a low quality journal that will publish anything if the check clears and then they can put out a press release and say new study says you know this pesticide that our competitors use is really deadly and then the media picks it up and dutifully reports on it it's it's uh it's ridiculous. And here, here's another thing in the story, another specific we can get to. This is a direct quote. They say, pesticides are everywhere. Pesticide residues have been detected in many places, including people's bedrooms and children's playgrounds. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. We're all now, doomed. Yes. Now, of course, the this is this comes down to the, the dose makes the poison adage that we're, we're very fond of. And I gave the comparison here, too. I said, uh, you know, my son's bedroom is, I don't know, five feet from my backyard where there's deadly insecticide sprayed every few months to keep the hornets away, <laughs> you know, because there's a, these annoying little creatures. They set up shop in my lawn. And so I can't take 
my son back there to play because they'll sting him. I can't mow my lawn because they'll sting me. And so the answer is to call the Orkin man to come in and blast the place with insecticide. Now, the difference is um, it's a very low dose. It's designed to target these, these bees, but it's not enough to hurt me. It's not enough to hurt my dog. It's not enough to hurt my son. And that's the vital context that people need. You know, So the fact that you can detect a pesticide somewhere it means next to nothing without more information about what's being sprayed, how much is being sprayed, how frequently, th- this and that, you know, these kind of details. It's also really important to note that these chemicals are being detected because analytical techniques have improved so much in the past couple of decades where you can measure almost anything. It was there all along and now it's being detected. So, since it's being detected, it must be harmful. 20 years ago, when we couldn't detect it, it was fine. So uh, Joe Schwartz up at McGill has written about uh, really some fine work about advances in analytical detection and how we're, you can pick up parts per trillion of a particular substance because of better instrumentation. There, if you look hard enough, you'll find pretty much any chemical on Earth in every one of us. So what? Are, yeah, just to, just to give people some context, I, it, it, like detecting something in the parts per trillion, it'd be something like a drop of a chemical in Lake Michigan. <laughs> it's like, it's just so infinitesimally small it just has no it can't possibly have any clinical relevance and and people just aren't told that it's you know i I mean it's there as you said technically it's there but it's it's like homeopathy it can't do anything well why would why would the researchers want to reveal that when they get grants based on looking for these trace chemicals they, they I don't know. It's not in their interest to do good science. It's in their interest to push science that will ultimately end up in court. Now, if that's not truly disgusting, I don't know what is. Oh, it's it's gross, man. It makes me uh, it makes me feel nasty all over. I need a shower sometimes after I read this stuff. I feel like a masochist on occasion, Josh, because I monitor what these groups put out, and it's just. It's just so incredibly misleading or dishonest in the kit. Like sometimes they'll get a toxicologist to write stuff for them, like environmental working group. And you know, that person has enough background knowledge to know what they're writing is, is misleading. And, and, and I, I don't know. They don't care. Whatever, whatever. That's all I can say. Let's, uh, let's leave it there. If you, uh, if you guys want to learn more about this kind of stuff, and read these articles that we're talking about. You can go to our website. It's acsh.org. Up at the top, there's a subscribe tab. If you click that, you can punch in your email, and we will send you our dispatch newsletter. comes out several times a week. It has all these stories, so when you show up to hear the show, uh, you'll know what we're talking about, and you'll be a little bit more informed, and maybe you can do something about some of these issues that we're talking about. Yes, sir. Can I just end with the delicious irony? Yes, you may. Based on what we've talked about, in that it's essentially corrupt science, not just bad science. And we're called industry funded. And these lawyers are making billions of dollars on going by bad science and and bad medicine.
Isn't that a little amusing at least? Yeah, I, it's it's kind of funny. It's like when you when you learn about an issue and then you realize that the reality is the exact opposite of what you told of what you've been told over the years. I remember feeling that way as I started to get into this line of work, you know, because I even before I worked here, I, I heard the you know ACSH is a corporate front group, they're industry whores, whatever this and that, um, but it doesn't make any sense. And the bottom line is, we have the facts on our side. You know, when Josh writes about opioids, um, he's got the data and he shows you the data. Same thing with pesticides or with any of these issues where we're, we're, we are, we are portrayed as, you know, shilling for an industry. That's, that's ridiculous. So it's just wrong. It's just wrong. We have, we have the evidence. And if you don't like it, you can go shout at a cloud and uh, we don't care. Uh, Josh, you're on, you're on Twitter as well, right? I think you are at Josh Bloom, ACSH, a very creative Twitter handle. Um, yes, right. I, I, I paid a focus group to come up with that <laughs> with all my industry money. Uh, you know, it was no problem. You know, I just, I took them out, took them out to lunch, paid a, uh, you know, bought a couple of hookers and, and it was done. <laughs> took them to Outback Steakhouse. You bet. <laughs> okay. All right. At Josh Bloom, ACSH on Twitter. So you can get all of Josh's writing. You can follow ACSH as well. We are just at ACSH org. That was also focus grouped. So Very well. clever indeed. Yes. Yeah. But you can get all our content. You can follow us. If you argue with us, we will argue back. Just a, just a warning. If you ask us questions, we will answer them. We're a very, very interactive group of writers. So thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next week. 